Acts 9.32 is our next verse. Begin with prayer. Thank you, dear Lord, that we can gather and uh, learn together what you've taught us in your word. And we pray that you'd help us understand and apply what we learn and care for one another in the process. Help us, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, now we're to moving from Paul to Peter. Eric, you got a mic there. Do you want to read 32 to 43 so we get Absolutely. the context? Acts 9.32, it says, Now, as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived in Lydda. There he found a man named Ainus, beridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Ainus, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose, and all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days she became ill and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lida was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, Please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing him tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. Amen. So last time we were talking about Saul of Tarsus. And we found a map. Now we're going to be talking about Lydda and Joppa. You can see Jerusalem. So toward the Mediterranean Sea. Galilee part is up north of Jerusalem, north of Jericho. And this is the area where we're going to see Peter moving around and doing ministry. I think Ashkelon is also mentioned. So the church was growing. The message of the apostles going forth, people hearing the gospel, Peter traveling, and God does some miracles as he has throughout Acts, carrying on what began in Luke through the ministry of Jesus and the ones he appointed. Now, I have a little citation of Robert Tannehill, whose two-volume work, The Narrative of Unity of Luke-Acts, is really seminal when it comes to studying Luke-Acts. His work is just unbelievably well done, thoughtful, and helps us understand Luke Acts as a two-volume work, and it's grounded in the idea of authorial intent. Okay, what is Luke telling us? Rather than the liberals trying to pick apart everything, try to find errors, which most of the time they can't, or trying to claim none of this ever happened, we're just looking at what God did and what 
God said and how he gave us Luke Acts through Luke the physician. So here's one of the things that's true about Acts to help us understand Luke's point. Quoting Tannehill, quote, Saul is sent off to Tarsus, Acts 9.30. When he next appears in the narrative, Barnabas will find him there, Acts 11.25. So, as we've said, Acts is not a biographical description of the life of Paul. Okay? And there's no reason to say that's what it's supposed to be. It is what it's supposed to be because God inspired it. So how Luke tells us what God did is he uses geography to unify the narrative as he switches around with different people. So Saul's in Tarsus. Saul disappears for a while. Now we have Peter. Next time we find Saul, he's still in Tarsus. There's your narrative unity going along. Tarsus, by the way, up in Asia Minor. Back to Tannehill. This illustrates a narrative technique that is used more than once. Geographical locations, says Tannehill, are used to create links in narrative lines that will be broken by other material. One section of the story of Saul ends by placing him in the location where the next section of his, his story will find him. Philip, says Tannehill, was handled in the same way. Acts 8 ends by placing Philip in Caesarea, which prepares for a later scene in which Philip is briefly mentioned. It takes place when Saul comes to Caesarea and Philip is his host. Acts 21, 8 through 9. So Luke doesn't forget. (laughs) Here's where Philip is. Now he's there again. Similarly, says Tannehill, 943 places Peter in Joppa where Cornelius' messengers will find him in the next scene. This technique may be especially useful in Acts 8 through 12, where the narrator is switching among a number of leading characters. So there's the geography, because that's what's tying together various characters in Luke-Acts. So let's look at 32 and 33. Now, as Peter was traveling through all those regions... He came down also to the saints who lived in Lydda, as I showed you. There it is right there, right in the middle of the slide. There he found a man named Aeneas who had been bedridden eight years, for he was paralyzed. Now, not only, by the way, does Luke Acts use geography to tell the story, Geography is important in Luke Acts. When I preach through Luke, one of the things that is fascinating about Luke is the travel narrative. From Luke, I've, boy, it's been some years. I think I got this right. Eric can correct me. Maybe. I think it's Luke 9.51 that starts the travel narrative. And the journey to Jerusalem goes chapter after chapter after chapter to build tension leading to Jesus coming to Jerusalem and the tragic situation where Jerusalem is lamented over because they didn't recognize the day of visitation. Okay, the day of visitation. Visitation, episcopae, in the Greek, 
is a very interesting word. Our latest CIC article was just published, and Christie already has some. Visitation is one of the issues in there that I deal with. And it's called two-domain theology. And I think that theologians do not put enough attention to how the Bible, especially in the New Testament, describes conversion as going from one spiritual domain to another. And I came up with the idea for the article by preaching through 1 John. Remember those slides? Either this or this, this or this, this or this. Kingdom of Satan, kingdom of Christ. Child of God, child of the devil. Light or dark. And the verse I use as the heading for the article is Acts 26, 18. Luke really uses it. But one of the ideas is visitation. So Jesus is going to Jerusalem from 951 all the way into wherever that is. Uh, 18, where's the lament? 18, or you can look it up. But anyhow, I looked up the word visitation in the Greek and in, in some of my best lexicons, and it's used in the Old Testament as well, and the Greeks used it. And in the Greek thinking, the gods would come down and visit men on an inspection tour. And when they did, they're either going to be happy or angry. Now, it's, I think, frankly, the pagans have a memory that goes all the way back to the Tower of Babel, and they got their ideas from things that actually did happen. For example, at the Tower of Babel, God comes down to visit to see what they're doing. Remember that? What happens? He disapproves. So he thwarts them, confuses their languages, scatters them all over the earth, and then Deuteronomy 32 tells us he draws out boundaries. So you have nations with different languages and different boundaries, and that's how God was going to keep Babel from happening. And Eric's been talking about this. Mankind in its rebellion against God never gave up on having Babel. We want Babel. We want to get rid of all the boundaries. We want to have erase the language problem, which they're getting close to doing. And we're going to have one world without boundaries. And we're going to rebuild Babel. Right? That's what's going on. But right now, we're back to boundaries. Because the last election, people said, we're tired of one world. We want boundaries. So now the liberals are screaming mad. Why are they so angry? They hate us. They're so angry. Next Sunday, I'm going to preach on that. Why does the world hate us? That's my sermon next Sunday. Why does the world hate us? They want their babble. And boundaries are stopping them from having it. So how do I interpret it? Well, God is being merciful and delaying what we thought was going to happen right away. Say, Bob, it was Luke 19.41 where Jesus weeps over Jerusalem. Only There's the visitation. the visitation. So if you get that latest CIC article, we talk about two-domain theology, and one important aspect of that is the day of visitation. 
Now, the day of visitation is used in Peter to talk about the final judgment. And whenever there's a visitation, Luke Acts talks about the visitation of God in the person of Christ. And the power of God is invading the world that lies in darkness. And when there is a visitation, there's always an opportunity for salvation if you turn to God. But if you rebel against him, the judgment will be even worse. So Jesus coming on the scene of history and then pouring out the Holy Spirit is the visitation of God. Jerusalem did not recognize the day of visitation, so Jesus weeps over them. But who did recognize it? Unexpected people. Prostitutes. Prostitutes. Shepherds, which were considered perpetually unclean. God is visiting, and unexpected people that everybody hated are being saved, and the people that are the powers that be don't recognize it, and they get the negative. Go ahead, Eric. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Back to the Tower of Babel, Genesis 11, you have this humanity that rebels. You have the visitation of God. The very next chapter, God starts over with a new humanity. He begins by calling Abraham. By the time you get to Genesis 15, you have another visitation. God comes down. Who leads Abraham outside? Well, I would imagine Christ does, the pre-incarnate Christ. Yeah, he leads him that outside. was God himself to visit Abraham. God himself gives a visitation, but what's Abraham's response compared to those at Babel? Genesis fifteen six. he believed God and was credited him as righteousness. So from Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, comes the new humanity that Babylon failed to give, and it's all because of God's doing. So, under the new covenant, from the Pentecost until the rapture, there's always the same situation. And we can either believe God and be saved or be judged because we didn't recognize the time of visitation. You know what they said in Luke in a parable? We will not have this man rule over us. We don't want him. Either you change Jesus into some socially conscious uh, liberal Jesus or we won't serve him. Isn't that what's going on? That's why they hate us. And I just thought of this today. I was in seminary, and because I was a full-time pastor, it took me some years to get my education. And through the process, I had to be interviewed by my advisor and one other professor to decide if I'm worthy to stay in the seminary. And so I went to my interview... And they asked me about chapel. And they said, do you go to chapel? I said, well, I did, but I haven't been because I'm a full-time pastor. and I'd rather go back and get my work done. Well, when you did go, did you like it? I said, mostly not. (laughs) And they said, well, why don't you like it? I said, well, it's always consciousness raising. Okay. So my advisor just kind of sat there. But this other professor goes, what? What do you mean by that? And and it just popped out of my mouth. They want to make sure that we feel guilty about the right things. They're always 
pounding us, you should be guilty because you're living in the suburbs. You should feel guilty because you got enough money to buy your own food. You should feel guilty because you're a certain race. You got to feel guilty. And when you don't feel guilty, they get so angry. Well, I don't feel guilty. God washed away my sins. And that other guy was laughing. He says, I want you in my class. He was a conservative. (laughs) Do you feel guilty about the right things? But what we need to feel guilty about is if we don't recognize the day of visitation and come to Christ. And the Bible is very clear. This is not turning certain people away because of social reasons. Because many of the people highlighted in Luke-Acts are totally unexpected people, like the prostitute weeping on Jesus' feet, the shepherds guarding their flocks. We, We think that sounds idyllic. No, they were considered unclean. The shepherds were banned. Lepers, the lame, the blind, the lost, recognized the day of visitation, but the religious leaders, with all the power, with all the honor, with all the authority, rejected him. There's Luke. So, in that vein... Peter finds a man who was bedridden for eight years. He was lame, paralyzed. Now, if you're a good reader, that should tell you something. Because what happened in Luke, what happened in Luke, the lame were healed. Remember the story I expounded in this article we just published. Remember the guys who were very resourceful. Jesus, I think it's Luke 5. See if you can find it, Eric. (coughs) Jesus was there speaking, and these fellows wanted to get their lame friend healed. But they couldn't get close enough to get Jesus' attention. Remember what they did? They lowered him down through a roof. You're right, it's Luke 5. Luke 5. They lowered him down. So this is our big chance. Jesus is here. He has power. He heals people. Let's get our friend right in front of him. He'll heal him. So the guy comes down. Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. Remember that? What? Your sins are forgiven. Come on, Jesus, look at him. Now, there's a reason for this. Because in Luke Acts, and that, by the way, throughout the whole New Testament, one of the things that accompanies salvation and the time of visitation and moving from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, from Satan to God, one thing that's always linked is forgiveness of sins. Luke starts with it early on, it's in Luke 4, 18, and ends with it toward the end of Acts, Acts 26, 18. Forgiveness of sins. So they said, well, forgiveness of sins. Well, you can't see that visually. Your sins are forgiven. We still lay in there. So that you know that the Son of Man, reference to Daniel, who's the Son of Man, 
Messiah, has the authority on earth to forgive sins, stand up, take up your bed, and walk. Right? Then they glorify God. There it is. It proves. Now, whether you're lame or not, let me tell you this. We all need forgiveness of sins. So, Acts, on the heels of what happened in Luke, is telling us that this is still happening. God is taking people out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. And so we have another paralyzed man. So we're supposed to remember Luke 5. Now is something that Luke uses here, ginomai, which is really saying it came to be. Is that how you'd say it? It came into existence. It came to be. And this is, uh, by the way, uh, inclusio, same word used in verse 43. And the man who was paralyzed is healed. Let me point out something. The context tells me that this man was a Christian. Why? Well, for one thing, he's mentioned by name. And we know that Peter was traveling through the regions, and he came to the saints who lived in Lydda. And the man was known by name as one of the saints, I believe. So just like the man in Luke 5, whose sins were forgiven first and healed second, this man's sins were forgiven first and healed second. God is doing the same thing in Acts he did in Luke. So the fact that Jesus ascended to heaven, as he said he would, didn't stop the day of visitation. It's still happening. And my dear friends, it's still happening today. As the gospel is preached throughout the world, people are either going to recognize the day of visitation and be saved, or they're going to harden their heart and say, we will not have this man rule over us. And so the signs, the healings, show that God is on the scene of history. And it's prophesied. I was Go ahead. I know you were that, thinking that. Yeah, I, Bob and I have talked about this before. The Isaiah 35, yep. verses 5 through 6, the prophecy was that when Messiah breaks in into history, it says this. It says, then the eyes of the blind will be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped, then the lame man will leap like a deer. Bob has been showing us that that's being fulfilled in the ministry of Christ. That's one of Luke's major propositions. Amen. God is on the scene of history. For Nancy and then Eric, if you have something. Well, I'm just thinking, now they must have been believers because even in their heart, they must have been repenting of their sins in order for, I mean, because he forgave them their sins. So You mean in Luke 5? Yeah, yeah. Well, in fact, you're right. That's a good reading. If you look at Luke 5, right. it said when, he, when Jesus saw their faith. They had faith in God. Okay. That's why they brought the guy. Yeah. And I believe that this Aeneas was a believer too. And then he was healed. Eric, you had something. Yeah, I just was thinking that, you know, mankind has not changed. We're always looking. We tend to not think that we're sinners at all anyway. And so we want, to get, we want the healing. We want the, 
the good stuff, you know, that we think is the good stuff. We don't realize that it's a far greater thing that Jesus did to take away our sins because we, we just, um, and I think you guys have talked about this in recent weeks, how, you know, we in our fallen state, we can't even recognize. We're, we're just hopelessly lost. It's the Holy Spirit and it's God's mercy that, that even, and, and, and so, I don't know, when, when you look at, when I say that things haven't really changed, you look at a lot of the li- more liberal churches, they're, they're trying to deal with felt needs and all of that, because c- carnal, unregenerate man does not recognize he's a sinner. Right. See, we don't want to admit we have offended a holy God. Now, Noanne wanted to say something. See, religion always peddles guilt because that's how you motivate people to do what you want them to do. You're guilty. You're guilty, 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 guilty. But if you do what we say and think like we tell you, you'll still be guilty, but less so. That's what I meant by consciousness raising. You live in the suburbs and you have money in the bank. Guilty, guilty, guilty. Well, if I give it to a liberal politician. Well, now you're not so bad. <laughs> right? And I would say, where's the forgiveness of sins? I just wanted to um, say, and it's probably review for people in this room, but with the shack coming out, the movie, you know, and everybody going. But your comment about, um, you know, the receiving the forgiveness of sins, which the shack is very lacking you know they don't talk about that and the bible talks about you know two types of sorrow because mac is supposed to be so grieved about his life circumstances you know and the bible talks about two types of sorrow one that leads to repentance the other one is just sad for their circumstances and i think it's real clear which sorrow mac has you know he's sorry sorry because of where he finds himself but the whole uh, bottom line, instead of going to the Bible and finding out who is God and what has he done, he decides he's going to reinvent God. And so hence we have the whole movie and the whole book. Yeah. And I think it's just, you know, if, if anybody would be hearing this, you know, the dangers of because it's such an emotional movie and it sucks people in. Yeah, emotions don't lead us to the knowledge of the truth. Oh, there, Remember the guy that we were fighting? that Laron Schultz wrote a book called Reforming the Doctrine of God. He finally got tired of that, and now he's an atheist. He rejected God altogether. What does it say? Here's, here's a question. Where does agape love come from? Does it come from God through the Holy Spirit? And is it revealed by Christ who came? Or... Is it an emotion? An emotion. It's from God. Is that not right? What does it say about love? I think in First Corinthians thirteen. What if I gave away all my money? Is that in there? Or am I just dreaming it? It's really in there. If I gave everything away, like Mother Teresa and I don't have love, what does it say? You're a noisy gong. Good answer, David. All right, so, love isn't an emotion. It's the sacrificial act of God sending Jesus Christ 
to die for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, in order to bring us to God. And so when we believe on Jesus and his blood washes away our sins, we're forgiven. And we don't feel guilty by comparing ourselves to other people. And that's why we're hated. I'll preach on this next week. Uh, There was a guy on TV a few years ago from California, and he was big on possibility thinking, but he didn't want to talk about sin because, oh, man, that wasn't... It would hurt your (laughs) self-esteem. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Well, that's my, my, in my lifetime, one of the great things I saw was Chris Roseborough, our Lutheran brother, who asked... Rick Warren, who had every program under the sun, and he was really good at making us feel guilty because we didn't sacrifice enough. And he said, what do you have for forgiveness of sins? Blank. Nothing. So we told him what forgiveness of sins is about through Christ. Blank stare, nothing. I, I turned my Bible to uh, 1 Corinthians 13 in the passage that you referenced here. Um, Thank you. If I have all faith let's see here um but if i give all my possessions to feed the poor and i surrender my body to be burned but do not have love it profits me nothing and then reading further on which is another characteristic of love it says love is patient it's uh, kind it's not jealous does not brag and is not arrogant does not act becomingly and does not seek its own it's not provoked um, it does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Yeah. I just think we really need to remember those other characteristics of what love is, particularly, you know, uh, um, not to be provoked. All of them are important, of course, uh, not to rejoice in unrighteousness, uh, to bear all things. And don't take into account wrong suffered. We all need to remember those yeah, things. Exactly. Such, you know, we 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 can't go pick up our whatever and say no. I said somebody didn't treat me right. I'm done. That's right. We're Christians because of redemption, and that doesn't go away. So you're right. And this is the work of the Holy Spirit. Talk about that next week. No, in two weeks, April second, in the other building, I'm going to be back in First John, and I'm going to deal with a reading of the Holy Spirit coming to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. D.A. Carson has unbelievable reading of that. So good. So I'm going to preach on that. The Holy Spirit is still carrying on the day of visitation. And so if you're going to have agape love, it's only going to be through the Holy Spirit, not human sentimentality. Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up and make your bed. Immediately got up. And all who lived at Lydda and Sharon, that's the plain there, saw him and they turned to the Lord. Turned to the Lord. Turned is another synonym for repent. Some guy was trying to say in Acts that There's no repentance is not part of the gospel. Well, that's false. But frankly, some people ignore how many times it says turned. 
epistrepho. And it's used in Acts 11.21, Acts 14.15, Acts 15.19, Acts 26.18, that's one that I'm always citing, Acts 26.20, and elsewhere, including 1 Thessalonians 1.9. So when you preach the gospel, some people will believe, and believing is accompanied by turning to the Lord. So we already mentioned Luke 5. People had faith. There was a healed lame man. Here, the man is healed, and some people turn to the Lord. So that's how God was working in still is. God doesn't always heal people, but he still does. But what's really important is that you turn to the Lord. When Jesus told the lame man, your sins are forgiven, he already got the greatest gift. Yes. Okay, you're talking about uh, the word turn to the Lord. You mentioned a Greek word. Epistrepho. Okay, how would you define that in English? Would you say they turned or would you personally use... Turn is a good one. Would you personally use a different... Uh, word or no? I think it's a good translation. We just need to know that it's used synonymously with repentance in Acts. Okay, so how do you see that it's analogous with repent or whatever? Okay, Eric, go to Acts twenty six eighteen through twenty. One way we know that, well, for one thing, repent. When repentance is preached, people are saved, and it says they repented and they came to the Lord. So in the context, it's obvious to talk about people coming to Christ. So do they use, uh, like, the word repent in the Greek? Is that a different word? Yeah, that's... uh, Metatonin. But then those two words are... They're just Similar. different ways of saying the same thing, just like in English. Okay. Yeah, I, I see. Okay, yeah. If we say to somebody who's in living a wicked life, you need to repent, or if we say to them, you need to turn around. This is bad. We're saying the same thing. Go ahead. Yeah, you know, Bob just mentioned meta now. That's the verb for repentance. Meta, the prefix, usually has to do with after. Everyone's heard of metaphysics. That's kind of the physics beyond the physics, what you can see. Well, <clears throat> meta-nao really means an afterthought. Nao has to do with our mind. So you're having a second thought. You're changing your mind is the idea. Well, the turning is that. You've had a change of mind, so you've turned direction. You've turned from seeking idols, and you've turned to serve the living God. And right. that's how they're and synonymous. That. And that's what Bob, and exactly. That's what Bob is pointing out here in Acts 26.18. 26.18 through 20. He says it's to open their eyes so that they may turn, epistrepho, from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent, metanao, and turn, epistrepho, to God, synonymous, uh, performing 
deeds in keeping with their repentance, and that would be the noun form. There you go. Yeah. See, Lottie, good, good question. Very That's good. how you know. It's obviously synonymous there. Amen. Wow. So repentance is preached more than you might think. Let's keep going here. Acts 9, 36, 37. Now on Joppa, there was a disciple named Tabitha, which translated in the Greek is called Dorcas. I've heard of people still named Tabitha, but I haven't heard of a Dorcas. I think the word means gazelle. Yeah, it means gazelle. This woman, now she is a, spoken of highly. This woman was abounding with deeds of kindness and charity, which she continually did. And it happened at that time that she fell sick and died. And when they had washed her body, they laid it in an upper room. So we know that she was loved, was known for her benevolence, her deeds of mercy. And this again has an echo, reviews and previews. If you jot down Luke 7, 11 through 17, Jesus healed someone, a young man, 714, young man, I say to you, arise. The dead man sat up and began to speak. Now, I think you know this, but in case somebody's new or they hadn't heard this, when there was a resurrection of the dead in Luke Acts or in John, this is not the same as the resurrection at the end of the age. And what do I mean by that? Well, they died with a mortal body and they were raised with a mortal body. The resurrection promised in the Bible is the resurrection to an immortal, imperishable body. So these people were dead and raised, but then later died again. One interesting thing is Lazarus in John. Remember Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth, and he was raised. The Jewish authorities who hated Jesus were conspiring to put Lazarus to death. That one blows me away. Lazarus is dead. He's already decomposing. Jesus raises him, and he's wandering around. Everybody knows God raised him. And the religious people said, we got to kill this guy. Too many people are coming to Christ. (laughs) That one... It shows you how wicked people can be. 38 and 39. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, having heard that Peter was there, sent two men to him, imploring him, do not delay in coming to us. So Peter rose and went with them, and when he arrived, they brought him into the upper room, and all the widows stood beside him, weeping, and showing all the tunics and garments that Dorcas slash Tabitha used to make while she was with them. So this was, they were saying, she was so kind. She loved us. She did things for people. She did acts of mercy. We love her. And now here she is dead. 
Now this again reminds me a little bit of uh, Luke. Remember in Luke, I think it's Luke 8, Jesus was called to go take care of somebody who was really sick. And on the way, and this was after all these other things happened in Luke 8, on the way, this woman touches the hem of his garment. Remember that one? And that one, and she had an issue of blood. What did that mean? That for the Jews, she was perpetually unclean. She never, ever could be really in fellowship. She was unclean, unclean, unclean. Just like the dead are unclean. Or the lepers are unclean. Or the shepherds are unclean. They're always in that state. Because they can't do what they need to do for ritual purity. And Jesus, this person is healed. And we had that little interlude, but it delays him. And then they sent a messenger. Didn't they come and say, don't bother, she's dead now? Am I getting this right? I'm doing it from memory. Toward the end of Luke 8. So he gets delayed, and the person dies. Was it a man or a woman that died, or a girl? Or? Young girl, I thought so. No, don't worry, she's just asleep. And he goes and heals her, raises her. So now we have Peter doing what Jesus did. And even the fact there was a little delay or they had to go get him. So there's an echo in Acts 9 of Luke 8. Earlier in Acts, there was a discussion about taking care of the widows. Greek-speaking Jewish Christian widows were very vulnerable. Why? Well, for one thing, if you're a widow at all, you're vulnerable in those days. Another thing was, if you're a Greek-speaking Jewish Christian, you're on the outs with everybody. The Romans, the Jews, nobody's going to take care of you if you're a Greek-speaking Jewish widow. You have no husband. You're not in good stead with the Jews. You're not in good stead with the Romans. Nobody wants you. So earlier in Acts 6, they took action to care for such people. So here is a great sign of God's power and mercy that raises this person from the dead. They sent for Peter. Yes, hold on. Here comes the mic. So we've all heard about the people in modern times that claim they've died and gone to heaven, and of course I don't believe that. Scripture tells us it is appointed unto man once to die. So how, how does this play into that? These people were dead, then they were brought back to life. Well, they did die there once and await the final judgment. But one thing that these narratives never say is that people interviewed them about what happened while they were in heaven. Nobody ever came back and said, oh, I talked to David and I talked to Paul. I wrote an article about this back in the 90s called Visiting Heaven and Hell. After I wrote the article, there's probably been 10 more such books. And the books that these people write 
they're all claiming to have talked to people in heaven and gained information that we don't have. But in every case that I surveyed back in those days, they all came back with information that denigrated the importance of Scripture. So it's not from God. So I don't think this is a disproof of that verse. It's that these people didn't come back to get a second chance to do better the second time. They were brought back to show the power of God in the person of Christ. But they still are only going to die once in the sense of permanently, and then judgment happens yeah, in the end. Yeah, ex- exactly right. You know, think about how the Bible numbers the death. Remember in Revelation 20, the second death has no power over them. So you can die and be raised as Lazarus was and die again physically, but not be part of the second death because the second death is thrown into the lake of fire. So the Bible sees the death once, Hebrews 9.27, it's appointed once for a man to die. After that comes judgment. Is The first death is the physical separation, but the second death is eternal separation from God in the lake of fire. That's never part and parcel for the believer. It's only the first death. And so Bob is exactly right. That's why Jesus is called the first fruits of the resurrection, because he was the first one to ever be raised and have an immortal body to do, you know, to live forever um, in that state. So, yeah. I may have said this. I don't remember if I recounted this in my article, but in the 80s, I worked in a ministry with a lady who had had one of these near-death experiences that people write about. And what do they all have in common? Everything is light. Everything's good. Well, I, there was a lady that we worked with who had been in a car accident earlier and was pronounced dead and then later resuscitated. And she says, but she wasn't a Christian when all that happened. And she told me she experienced the light and all the beauties and everything's wonderful. And then later came back and she wasn't that old of a person. And somehow she came medical, medically resuscitated. Um, here's what she said. I wasn't a Christian and that whole experience was Satan. Satan was lying to me. I was made to think I didn't need Christ. That everybody goes to a better place. And by God's grace, she was later converted when I knew her. And she said, you can't trust those experiences because had I believed in that, I would have never come to Christ. It was all a big lie. What did Jesus say? They have Moses and the prophets. If they don't believe Moses and the prophets, what did Jesus say? They will not believe if somebody's raised from the dead. Kind of like the visions that people are seeing of Mary and none of them. She doesn't point to Christ. She points to herself, um, which totally visions denies. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting that if you read what it says in Luke about Mary, she calls God her Savior. Doesn't she? Well, if Mary is sinless, why does she need a Savior? It's all delusion. Let's keep going. I might actually get done. Go ahead, Craig. Don't, don't give up here. 
I was just going to bring up one point on this, um, people who see visions of heaven afterwards. In 2 Corinthians 12, Paul talks about how it's too wonderful for even man to explain. It's illegal to talk yeah. about. So these visions that people have of seeing heaven, if Paul, if anyone had the authority to talk about these things, it would have been Paul. And he was, and he and didn't. he didn't. I think I mentioned that in that article from years ago. Good point. Good reading, Craig. See, I've, um, I've read someplace that, like, the brain after death is still alive for, like, I've heard up to 72 hours or something like that, and I just kind of wonder if there's something going on in the brain I don't know. after death. I have no idea. That you see the light or something. I think it's a delusion is what I think. Uh-huh. But I, I almost died three times, but I never saw anything. Okay. Uh, all I thought was, well, this is it. I'm going to be in heaven. And the first book I ever read about a visit to heaven, I bought in the, when I was in Bible college, and it was written in the 40s called Rebecca Springer's Vision of Heaven, or maybe the 50s. And so when she was in heaven, she spent part of a day going to hear a lecture by Luther about the Reformation. And so I'm reading this book, and I think, are we going to be rehashing all the problems in church history when we're in heaven? That doesn't make any sense. She was probably a Lutheran, and she just thought that'd be fun. I don't know. Heaven should not be rehashing the Reformation. Probably not. Anyhow, I decided I wasn't going to believe those things. Yeah, in Luke 8.52, by the way, they were weeping, lamenting. But he said, stop weeping. She has not died, but is asleep. Luke 8.53, they began laughing at him, knowing she had died. He, however, by the way, they were lamenting. Did you know that they used to hire people to do that? You ever heard that story? And if you're really rich, you hired a lot of people. And if you paid them extra, they would just, oh, scream. And, ah, 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 it's so bad, it's so bad. And you had to have a lot of those people if you're really important. So here they are. Ah, they come in. Oh, she's not dead. Ha, 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 ha. What a joke. How do you go from your worst day to laughing? <laughs> I don't know. It's interesting, isn't it? I don't know if that was authorial or intent or me just thinking as I'm reading here. But it didn't take long. And as her spirit returned, 55, she got up immediately and he gave orders for something to give her to eat. Her parents were amazed. Word in the Greek there is used as a response to God's mighty deeds, which reveal the gospel. He instructed them to tell no one. There's, there's this hidden aspect of things that are going to be revealed when he gets it later to Jerusalem. Actually, the full revelation happens even on the road to Emmaus. All right, last slide. We're going to make it. Acts 9, 41 to 43. And he gave her his hand and 
raised her up and calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known all over Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. And Peter stayed many days in Joppa with a tanner named Simon. Now, I put this on my slide. This is just so thematic in Luke Acts. You have to see it. If you just start with Luke 1 and read to the end of Acts, and you start paying attention to who's healed, who's saved, who glorifies God, who finds mercy, and again and again and again, not always the case, but many, many times, it's the unclean. It's people well, like the woman with the issue of blood or the lepers or the shepherds or the Gentiles or the demoniac, the most magnificent of all of them is in Luke 8 with a guy from the Gerizines who was so insane he wouldn't keep clothes on. He kept running away to the wilderness, unclean. They chained him up in the tombs, unclean. He was full of demons, unclean. He was insane out of his mind. Jesus heals him. He has 2,000 demons, unclean. The demons go into the swine, unclean. The swine jump into the sea, bad place to go. The sea was awful. You don't want to go there. Do you know why the Jews fear dying at sea? Anybody ever heard that one? Because... Their idea was to be gathered together. They used to bury the families together so they could be together in the afterlife. Okay? And if you died at sea, that couldn't happen. Rather than being gathered to your fathers, you're gone. There's no body. It's the abyss. The sea is the abyss. Bad. So what does it say in Revelation about the sea at the end? There's no more sea, and the sea gives up the dead, right? So the Christian gospel says no. If you're a true Christian and you die at sea, you'll still be resurrected. But think of Luke 8. Demon-possessed, insane, chained in tombs, 2,000 demons, pigs, unclean, the sea, bad. Demon-possessed, pigs going into the sea. Wow! It doesn't get any bad. That's the worst thing ever. Yikes. And the man is in his right mind. And he wants to be a disciple. I want to follow Jesus. And what did Jesus say to this man? By the way, the story is you can't be too bad off, too unclean, too lost, that Jesus can't save you. And Jesus trusted this guy with the gospel. This is the first time in Luke Acts where Acts 1-8 was already starting to be fulfilled. Go tell your people what God did for you. Can you imagine the people seeing this guy? They all knew the story. There's a demon-possessed maniac chained in in the tombs. Do you think anybody didn't hear about it? Here he goes. Well, look at what Jesus did for me. So the gospel goes to the Gentiles. Let me give a takeaway of this then. By the way, the reason I said all that, tanners were also perpetually unclean. 
they were dealing with the dead animals. And according to one of my sources, the tanning that they did back then used urine as part of the process. That was unclean. Unclean, unclean, unclean. So the tanner is somebody that would be undesirable. But that's just the way Luke is. Somebody's going to be a Christian who's undesirable to everybody else. Do you think there's hope for us? There is. That's the whole message. You're not so bad off, but what there's hope in Christ. Come to Christ. I'm going to quote with scholar and we'll be done here. Dr. Peterson, indeed, the assignment of Tanner is mentioned again several times in the following narrative. 10.6, 10.17 through 18, 10.32. Tanners were considered unclean by more scrupulous Jews because of their contact with the hides of dead animals. Peter was apparently not troubled by such concerns. And interestingly, let me just tell you how the beauty with how Luke tells his story under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Peter didn't mind staying with a tanner who's unclean. But in the next chapter, he won't eat unclean food. And so God uses this tanner in his house for Peter to go learn a lesson that God's going to remember the, the sheet comes down, take and eat. Oh, I've never eaten anything unclean. Here's a lesson. God uses the things that are not to confound the things that are. It's God's delight to save the wretched, the hopeless, the unclean, the lost, the derelict, the undesirable, the hopeless. And people say, I'm in that sheep. Say, good. Come to Christ. He'll receive you. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for using Luke to tell us about your mighty deeds and your mercy and your grace and your willingness to receive us. Thank you, Lord. You're so kind to us because we had no part in this and we were hopeless and you saved us. We thank you, Lord, and pray that you'd bless Eric now as he preaches to us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. God bless you. Well, thank you.